You are listening to the IFH Podcast Network. For more amazing filmmaking and screenwriting podcasts, just go to ifhpodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast, episode number 150. Assumptions allow the best in life to pass you by. John Sales. Broadcasting from a dark, windowless room in Hollywood, when we really should be working on that next draft. It's the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast, showing you the craft and business of screenwriting while teaching you how to make your screenplay bulletproof. And here's your host, Alex Ferrari. Welcome, welcome to another episode of the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast. I am your humble host, Alex Ferrari. Now, today's show is sponsored by Bulletproof Script Coverage. Now, unlike other script coverage services, Bulletproof Script Coverage actually focuses on the kind of project you are and the goals of the project you are. So we actually break it down by three categories, micro-budget, indie film market, and studio film. There's no reason to get coverage from a reader that's used to reading tentpole movies when your movie's going to be done for $100,000. And we wanted to focus on that at Bulletproof Script Coverage. Our readers have worked with Marvel Studios, CAA, WME, NBC, HBO, Disney, Scott Free, Warner Brothers, The Blacklist, and many, many more. So if you need your screenplay or TV script covered by professional readers, head on over to CoverMyScreenplay.com. Guys, I have an immense treat for you today. I had the pleasure of speaking to the legendary independent filmmaker, writer-director John Sayles. Now, if you're not familiar with John's work, he is pretty much almost at the beginning of independent film as we know it in the 70s coming up. And it, it was just an absolute pleasure talking to him. Some of the projects he's worked on are Eight Men Out, City of Hope, Passion Fish, Men of War, Lone Star, Men with Guns, Sunshine State, and so many more. He is a two-time Oscar-nominated writer. And if that wasn't enough, he also directed some of Bruce Springsteen's most iconic music videos, kind of like that little song called Born in the USA and a couple other ones that Bruce did. And if you don't know who Bruce is, please, for God's sakes, Google it. Anyway, uh, I, I had an amazing conversation with John. I was in awe of... The, just the, the knowledge bombs he was dropping, the nuggets of gold he was just spitting out throughout this entire conversation. I literally went back to this interview and started to take notes again because it was literally a masterclass sitting in front of a master and listening to him talk about his craft, how he writes, how he directs. Specifically, there's a great part about how he directs actors. You know, And I've been doing this 25 years and I was learning stuff left and right. It was absolutely remarkable. So without any further ado, please enjoy my conversation with John Sales. I'd like to welcome to the show, John Sales. How you doing, John? Good. Thank you so much for coming on the show, my friend. I, I truly, truly appreciate it. I've, like I told you uh, off air, it, it, I'm a huge fan of, of your work over the years and and uh, you, when I was coming up in the 90s as a, as a film student, you know, Lone Star and Eight Men Out and all of those films really had a big impact on me. So uh, I, I, I'm excited to get into it with you, my friend. Great. So uh, first of all, first of all, how did you start this insane journey of being a filmmaker? You know, I I 
started really just telling stories. I, I certainly grew up watching more TV and movies than I did reading books, although I did read books. Um, I did some acting in college and directing of, of uh, theater in college. The college I went to didn't have a theater major and certainly didn't have a, a film major back in 1970 you know, or whatever it was. Um, there were, you know, maybe about four film schools at that time. I didn't go to any of them. <laughs> um, um, and, and so I started out basically having this kind of long distance Jones for, wouldn't it be great to make a movie? Um, I didn't know anybody who had ever made a movie or been in one. I didn't know anybody who'd written a book or gotten one published. But I did, I, I, I was working just kind of straight jobs and started sending off short stories to magazines. Um, got one published, got another one um, that the, the company said, well, could you expand this into a novel? And so I started as a novelist. I, I, I wrote wow. two novels and a short story collection. And then um, a friend of mine who uh, had produced and directed the summer theater I'd worked in, who I'd gone to college with, said, you know, we know so many, you know, good actors. And I had just started getting work as a screenwriter in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. um, somebody had read one of my short stories. Uh, they worked for Roger Corman. He said, well, let's get this guy and see if he can do anything. Um, and uh, I wrote Piranha for him, which was a yes. very successful New World picture. Mm -hmm. um, then I wrote two other movies for Roger. And he was, um, at that time, a signatory to the Writers Guild. So I had to get paid minimum, which was $10,000 for a screenplay. Which I'm sure he hated. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, well, he wasn't, a, he wasn't a signatory to the Director's Guild, so uh. Joe Dante, who directed Piranha, got $8,000, um, which was well below the um, Guild minimum at that time. Right. Um, but I had $30,000 in, in one place at one time. I figured, <sighs> when is this ever going to happen again? Uh, my friend who had run the summer theater uh, I worked in just said, well, let's make a movie. And so... I wrote Return to Quaka 7, um, and it's really the only time I've, I've, I've done this where I said, here's how much money I have. Let me write something I can do well for that budget. Sure. And I, I you know, I had some vague idea about what, you know, camera rental of a 16 millimeter camera and all that, you know, very little idea, really, because there weren't books about filmmaking or YouTube. Yeah. Um, there wasn't. Uh, internet yet and so um it was kind of on the job training um and i had five weeks to shoot um and we rented this uh old ski lodge near the theater that we had worked in that that we had lived in before which became housing set you know office um nothing i shot was more than a five mile radius from that mm -hmm. uh the movie was full of people who were right around 30, um, who were good actors, but not quite in the, the you know, right the uh, Actors Guild yet. And it was about people turning 30. So it was very much tailored to 
as I said, what I could do for very little money. Um, I had a crew of seven who had made commercials in Boston, but never a feature before. Mm-hmm. Um, they had 16 millimeter film equipment and could rent the rest of it. And on the first day, um, my first shot, I did a not that complicated tracking shot and timed how long it took to, um, you know, get done. And I decided no more tracking shots in this movie. <laughs> Lock the cat. camera and a little bit of handheld. <laughs> and, and we got it made somehow and then got it made. I edited it uh, just through a friend of a friend. We got a recommendation to submit it to a couple film festivals. One, the Film Fel- Filmex Festival, uh, which used to be in Los Angeles, good festival. And then the, uh, the New Directors Festival in New York. And we got into both of those. And this is 1978. There's about wow. five, maybe six independent distributors um, who they'd watch anything with sprocket holes. You know, right. Like the head of the company would watch anything with sprocket holes because there was so little competition. And uh, so we had about three companies bidding for it. Uh, we went with a guy who um, who owned theaters in Seattle, Randy Finley. He had a company, and then he realized he really didn't know anything about East of the Mississippi. So he went partners with another of the bidders on the film, Ben Barinholtz, who had a company in New York. And Ben kind of invented the midnight movie, and you know had a long track record. And and together they got the movie a pretty good distribution. That's um, awesome. It, we never made that many prints. We probably had 10 prints in all, um, and we would play an area, you know, a region, and then move those prints to another region and move those prints to another region. <laughs> um, didn't do TV advertising. We did a lot of radio advertising. Um, right. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And uh, word of mouth. And in those days, uh, an off-Hollywood theater, um, if they were doing well with a movie, they'd just keep it on the screen. Yeah, because there's no competition. There was nothing. There was no content. They needed content. Yeah. Um, But you would get in a situation like in Chicago, um, the the art theater in those days was the Biograph, which Mm -hmm. is where John Dillinger was shot. (laughs) um, Jesus. And uh, and it was the only show in town for a non-Hollywood movie in Chicago. And I remember um, my year, what was it called? My brilliant career was doing very, very well. So we were in a holding pattern over Chicago until that started to do less business. And then we came in and did seven or eight weeks, which you just don't get to do anymore. Yeah, it was a whole other world back then. And then also that film got uh, submitted or got into the film registry, the, the U.S. Film, and, uh, film registry. Is that correct? Eventually, yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's – what was – I mean, seriously. That, I mean, that's that phenomenon, I think, you know, just kind of, you know, because it was kind of the beginning of the American independent movement. Um, yeah. All theaters showing American independent films starring nobody you ever heard of. Right. It was it was the it was it was the Sundance movement before there was Sundance. It was kind of like what the yeah, night about three years before Sundance. I actually went to something called with the USA, the the uh, Park City Film Festival. OK, which the next year became the USA Film Festival. Um, it was basically the Denver Film Festival. I think it was the Pences who ran Telluride for years, mm-hmm. ran it for a couple of years. 
And then um, Redford just decided to do Sundance, which, you know, stepped things up another notch. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I came up in, in the time of, of the 90s, which was the birth um, on, uh, like I was telling uh, Rick Lickletter when he was on the show, I was like, you know, you I go, you're kind of like the birth of the 90s independent film movement. And he's like, uh, y- there was John before me. Uh, there was many other others before me. I go, yeah, but the Sundance phenomenon, which is the overnight superstar, like the lottery tickets, um, yeah. like like Rick and like Robert Rodriguez and Kevin Smith and Ed Burns and Steven Soderbergh. Yeah, and the list goes on and on. Spike Lee, these kind of guys. That was that moment in time. But um yeah, I always like to always let people know, especially filmmakers, to understand like if you were able to just make a movie in the seventies and eighties, if you finished it, it was sold. Like, like it doesn't matter if it was good or bad. It didn't. It didn't necessarily get that much screen time, um, right? Or well, but somebody would try to put it on the screen and see if it worked. Yeah, exactly. Now I wanted to go back real quick to uh, your Roger Corman days because is there anyone who did not go through Roger Corman? <laughs> I mean, people, Jesus. A, a lot of people um, went through it, and, and their careers never really just you know took off. Right. Uh, R- Roger always said, um, "I'm suspicious of anybody who works for me more than twice. Um, <laughs> if they're any good, they've probably moved on." Um, but an awful lot of people did, you know, be, yeah. before me, Francis Coppola and Peter Bogdanovich and mm-hmm, uh, Jonathan Demme and Jonathan Kaplan and a whole slew of oh, people. Oh, God. It just, the list goes on. The list goes on and yeah. on. And now what was it? So out of all the time that you were working with John, I mean, excuse me, we were working with Roger. Uh, I mean, you did Piranha, which, you know, is a, it's a classic. And then did you write also Alligator? I did Alligator, which was not for Roger, but with with um, Louis Teague, who I had done uh, Lady in Red um, at right. Roger's company with. And then I did The Howling with Joe Dante, but that was not at, at New World. I did Battle Beyond the Stars. Yes, that's the one. Which is, uh, you know, James Cameron ended up uh, being made head of the uh, uh, production line. Yeah. And he met Horner, who did the, the, you know, the soundtrack for it. Um and, you know, so it was the, the great thing about working there is that Roger, if he paid you for a screenplay, mm-hmm. um, he, he wasn't going to waste that. He was going to make that movie. So for somebody to write three screenplays and see them on a screen within a year, That's it's very ins- rare in Hollywood. It's insane. It's insane to actually be able to do that. And then for the directors as well, um, he, he basically said, here's the deal. Here's your budget. Here's your script. <laughs> Don't go over, you know, make the best movie you can. And, you know, some of them were good and some of them less than good. And as he said, you know, if, you, if you're any good, you won't have to work for me again. So Ron <laughs> Howard was there when I was, you know, working there. And, and Ron did two, I think uh, he starred in one and then he, he directed another for Roger. And yeah. then he moved. Right, exactly. And uh, I have to ask you, what was the biggest takeaway you had from working with Roger at that time in your career? Like, what was that lesson that you're like, okay, I'm going to take this with me? And I used, and I used it, and you used it throughout your career. Um, certainly, it was get, getting to go to the set. I, I got to go to the set of Piranha um, down in Texas um, uh, for a couple days, and it was to see. What can be done with just hard work and creativity, and what do you need to throw money at? And 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 there's definitely you know a parting between those two, 
And so, you know, Joe Dante had $800,000 to make this Jaws spinoff. Um, <laughs> and he did what he could, you know, and some things cost money and, and some he just fudged it and found a way around the expense and, and still did a good job. Right. I think uh, if I remember Piranha, it was uh, there was there was some of the Piranha shown, but I think he used a lot of the Spielberg book of saying, like, let's just see the aftermath as opposed to always seeing the Piranha hit. You know, Joe had started in the editing room, you know, cutting trailers and then cutting um, features for Roger. There's a lot of fast cutting with all Ooh. Piranha. Um, <laughs> yes, there you is. Know, it, it's about this many frames, if you remember cutting <laughs> on, on film. Yeah. Um, and then, and then they don't look good anymore, you know, but, but with really good sound effects and good music by Pino DiNaggio, um, you know, Joe made it work. Yeah, no question. Now you've also edited many, I think, not all. Have you edited all? I, I, I worked with editors in all three of my 18 films. Right, exactly. So, and you edited a lot of them yourselves. Do you mm -hmm. find that filmmakers or directors specifically um, well, what do you th what what is the value you think being an editor brings to being a director? Because I've also been a cutter. I started off as a cutter, and I man, it makes my life a lot easier on set because I'm like I'm already editing it while I'm shooting. Do you find that yeah. as well? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Um, certainly, if you're working on a tight budget and uh, you're doing a little bit of coverage, you know, oh, I've got what I need. Mm -hmm. We're moving on. You know, so I often an actor will say, wait a minute, we only did three takes and I blew a line mm -hmm. every take. And I say, yes, but you blew a different line every take <laughs> and your acting was good and you didn't break character. And, you know, I've got this cover and we're moving on. Um, I think the other thing is, you know, um, you, you don't need to edit your own movies, but I think it's a good experience to have had. Um, you learn. Oh. It would have been nice to have a close-up of this. Mm -hmm. Oh, cut away. Have look left once, just in case, you know. Um, so you, you learn more about coverage when you're editing, um, especially when you're editing something. You know, I'm, I'm always cursing direct, the director when I'm in the editing room and saying, what an idiot. He didn't get <laughs> cut away from the dog or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, you learn that stuff, you know, and then the next time out, you, you you cover things a little bit better and not necessarily hosing things down. It's, you know, something very specific will will maybe get me out of a problem in the editing room later. Mm. And, and I'm going to get that specific thing right now. I think you can never have too many cutaways. <laughs> never yeah. have too many cutaways. I we'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. I've also done movies where I, you know, I have done lots of master shots, sure. like you know, seven, eight, nine minute long master shots. And the things with master shots, if, if you're really going to get the crew into it, you have to commit to them. Mm. You know, they hate it when they see you stop and do some little bit of coverage because why are they busting their balls? Lighting and the movement. Fun? Yeah. Yeah. And all that stuff. And so, you know, when I do those, I really commit to them. Sure. And, you know, build them up and rehearse them and everything. And then and then the great thing about that um, in your editing period is um, you come to that scene and you cut the slates off 
and you just cut eight minutes and go to the beach. Oh, it, you know, it, that's, that is the, if you're, when you're able to pull off one of those long takes, you're just like, <clears throat> oh, great. That was a great, it was an easy cut. It was eight minutes of the movie. I don't have to worry about now. It's yeah. wonderful. And usually that's the morning. Eight minutes is a great morning. Oh. <laughs> Absolutely. No, no question. Now, um, is it, is it true? I read somewhere that you did a lot of acting and writing assignments to kind of support the directing aspect of it or to have freedom to do your own things. Is that kind of true? Well, no, I, I that, that's how I make a living. Yeah. Um, you know, on my movies, I've a little better than broken even <laughs> over the years, you know, because I have invested in my own movies. Okay. Uh, and, and very often, uh, the Directors Guild and Writers Guild very nicely have said, well, well, if you're investing your own money, you don't have to pay yourself up front. If the movie makes money, then you, you pay yourself out back. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes I do. And sometimes I, I you know, don't get to that point. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't get paid. You know, I only I act for scale. So, you know, my acting is not going to finance anything. Mm -hmm. But I make a living as a screenwriter for hire. And that's. That's usually the money that I have if I have to invest in, in my own project right. or be one of the investors in my own project, just stuff that I've built over the years, you know, as a screenwriter for hire. Um, now, you know, I've written over 100 screenplays um, between my own movies and other movies, probably 45, 50 of them have been made. So I do get residuals. And that's a nice income when you you have a, a fallow period and you don't get new work. You know, you, you've got some money coming in from those residuals. The howling does very well around Halloween. Uh, <laughs> yes, it does. Uh, but, uh, you, but you also do a lot of uh, script doctoring as well. Well, not really doctoring. I do a lot of rewriting. Right, yeah. Uh, I've, I've occasionally done doctoring. I think twice in my life I've done something where they said, can you just punch up this character? Right. You know? Or can you run this through one time and, and that's going to be it? Um, generally, though, I'm given a script. Um, they say this isn't working. Maybe they have an idea of what direction to go to. And then they just say, well, take it from there. So something like The Howling, you know, I had it. They, they gave me a script and they said, you know, keep the werewolves, keep the title. <laughs> can go. And that was fine, you know, and, and I didn't have much time to do it. And. You know, that was good also because then you, you don't get re rewritten a million times by committees. Um, you know, it's, it's always nice to um, to jump on the bus when it's about to go over the cliff because they're always <laughs> can do anything to put the brakes on. You know, they're happy about it. That's actually. Yeah, I, I think, you know, if you're not willing to bet on yourself, um, I, I know Mel Gibson has done it a couple times. Uh, John Cassavetes used Jesus. to put a mortgage on his house you know, to, to, to get movies, uh, made. And, you know, so I, I, I don't love the fact that I end up investing in my own movies, but I, I, I do it when I have to. But the, but the game has changed so much over the years in regards to investing in your own movies and making money with your own movies. I mean, back, like you said, in the seventies, eighties, even nineties and early two thousands, there was something called DVD. Uh, there was something called foreign pre-sales. There was a bunch of that kind of stuff where in today's world, it's so much harder for you to generate revenue from a film just because of the gluttony of content out there. I mean, you came up in a time when there was an ability to do that. I think it's much, much, much harder now. From my experience in talking to filmmakers uh, making, yeah, I, I, trying I to sell today. 
um, you know, there, there, there's not as much of an audience going to non-Hollywood films. Right. In Canada, you know, even before COVID. Um, you know, that was kind of hard, traceable cash. Um, I remember when Steven Soderbergh was um, the president of the Directors Guild, he had a study done, and it was something like 2% or less of directors' income was coming from their movies being shown on computers. Wow. And a higher and higher percentage of the people watching their movies were watching them on a computer. Sure. Uh, and so, you know, he was just basically saying, you know, the, the Internet had not really been monetized for filmmakers. And now that more and more movies are made for things like Amazon and network, Netflix, mm -hmm. where they go into that thing, um, <laughs> and who knows, you know, it's not money is not passing hands individually on that movie. How do you know? You know, you know, you get paid whatever they paid you to do it or or to hand it over. And then you just don't know. Yeah, uh, it, it, exactly. There was, a, there was that leak a, a few weeks ago about that they paid for Squid Games, I think, $21 million. But it's been seen by 180 million people. So if you try to monetize, I mean, can you imagine? I mean, that's a huge – but we don't get those numbers. So you're right. And I'd argue that the internet still hasn't been – Really, it's not really built to monetize for filmmakers now either. It's getting no, better, but it's not where it's still. It's not the olden yeah, days. Something existed like this um, in um, I'm in ASCAP and because uh, mm. I occasionally write um, lyrics for songs in our movies. And um, in the early days of ASCAP, um, they just sampled a certain number of stations. Mm -hmm. This is before computers. And so if you just played on, on eclectic stations, you might get nothing, even though your, your, your thing was you know, playing here and there. You got nothing. And Michael Jackson got everything, you know, because um, <laughs> he had the one hit that was playing everywhere. Um, now, almost every outlet that plays music um, is on computer and their playlist is trackable. So people are actually doing a little bit better if they're if, if they're getting any playtime at all. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's it's still, you know, the Michael Jackson equivalent is getting most of the money. Right. Um, but you're getting something. Um, it's just that there's so much out there that it's it's diluted right. so many times um, that that ideal thing where you make something, a person goes and sees it. They pay money and That's the money not. goes directly to you. There's not that direct to chain anymore. It was, it was never that direct. There were like five little things in between you and, and those dollars. Sure. Um, but no, it's it's like it's all on the cloud. And who knows how that you know money is going to float back to you, the filmmaker. Yeah. Now, when you – I mean you've written, like you said, over 100 scripts at this point in your career. How do you start the process? Do you start – if you're doing an original – script uh do you start with character do you start with plot how do you how do you start the process um i usually start with a, a combination of characters and plot you know so for, so for me it's it's um a character or characters in a really interesting difficult situation and it may be a life or death situation it may be a moral situation it may be a life change situation but that situation and those characters interest me um, and then I start, you know, 
very, you know, actually two or three times in the last couple of years I've done this where I'll be being flown out to, to Los Angeles or flying myself out these days mm-hmm. um, to have a meeting or something. And in that six hours, um, I have an idea for a movie. And what I'll do is I'll just write all the scene headings and then like a one line of what happens in that scene. And by the time I get there, I have maybe 20 pages of scene headings, which is like an outline for a movie. And it's got, you know, this, that it goes to this and then it goes to this and then it goes to this. And these are the places. And this is kind of what happens in it. And, and I'll look that over and generally I'll just start filling it in. Um, now, as I fill it in, I'm adding characters. I'm, you know, going into depth with those characters sometimes. Sometimes I have to stop and do research. Um, it may be something big. It may just be, okay, what kind of weapons would they use? Right. You know, I'm sure the, you know, Homeland Security, I'm high on their list of, oh, yeah, the right, the screenwriter, you know, he's blowing up the White House again. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, Google how to blow up White House. Not yeah, a good exactly. thing. <laughs> Not a good yeah. thing to t- <laughs> But, um, but yeah, I, I, it, it kind of the plot and character come together. Um, I write very fast. So I write a, a, a draft of a screenplay in about three weeks. Wow. And then generally, if I'm lucky, I'm working on something else and I'll go work on that and then I come back to it. Or even if I'm not, I'll just do something else for a week or two. And, and the way my head works, um, when I come back, it's like, who wrote this? I don't recognize it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then you can really be much more critical when you're, you're looking at it and trying to make it better. Every once in a while, it's like, geez, that's pretty good. You know, and other <laughs> times it's like, Ooh, why that's brutal. Um, gotta work on that. No, I've I had the exact same experience. Sometimes when I was, when I'm writing my book, sometimes I'll, I'll look at it. I'll like, who wrote this? Like, I'll just go the next day. I'm like, who wrote this? This is not bad. <laughs> Yeah. You just yeah. don't even reckon, you don't even recognize it. Um, I always I always like to ask uh, screenwriters and and high performer high performance individuals, uh, where do you believe? You know, when you're writing, do you do you like tap into that? Are you in a flow like the flow state? Are you tapping into something when you're writing? When you when you're sitting down, right? Like the muse, the, the, the you know the old idea of the muse showing up. What is that thing? And and do you know how to get to it pretty easily for yourself, or does it is it hard? We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. You know, I. I, I, I still write novels. Um, I've got a novel coming out late next year. That's like 800 page novel. Wow. And you know, you, you do, you do movies for a while and you don't do anything for a while. And then you decide, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to try to do that thing as a novel. And, and it, there's like, for me about 10 minutes of, do I still remember how to do this? And then I get interested in the story and mm-hmm. then, Oh, this could happen. And Oh, this could happen. And Oh, this connects with something else. And then you're into it. And so there, there really is like a zone mm-hmm. and I'm lucky. And then I've never really had that, um, you know, uh, writer's block thing, which is, and, and part of it is that I, I'm, I'm willing to just kind of, you know, keep moving and say better writing here. I'll work some of that out later. I don't know how to do this scene yet. So I'm going to go to the next scene and write that. And mm-hmm. then maybe I'll, I'll know when I come back. Um, so you, you just keep going forward, but I, I get into the zone pretty easily. 
Um, and, and <clears throat> you know, I like writing, so it's fun, you know, to, to see where the story's going to go and, oh, that, you know, I could connect this with this and all that. There's a lot of problem solving to it. So there's, there's, you know, there's kind of a, almost like a crossword puzzle kind of mm -hmm. thing. It's not something that's already there. You're creating it, but, um, to, to make those connections and to build one thing on another. And then you always get to rewrite. Right. You know, so I don't do much about anything being perfect while I'm doing it because I know I'm going to go over it. And, you know, half of the writing that I've done for hire has been rewriting other people's stuff. And I'm always happy to keep the good stuff, you know, <laughs> and, you know, or the structure if that's what they want me to keep. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not shy about, you know, uh, that's a great line. I'm keeping it. I don't care if I wrote it or not. Right. Now, and do you you've also directed some amazing um some amazing uh, uh actors over the years and i've noticed that you kept a lot of the same actors you kept working with the same actors again and again do you have any advice for filmmakers directing actors how do you pull a performance when an actor is not going exactly where you want to go well you know some of it some of it's just trust and, and that's one of the reasons to work with people that you've worked with before. Right. Um, you know, you know, I have, I tend to have big casts and, you know, you've got 20 people in the cast and eight of them are known to you. You've worked with them before. That's like, Oh, I don't have to juggle 20 balls. I can put <laughs> eight of them on the floor and I only have 12 right. you know, to figure out how you're there to help the actor and, and the actor is there to help you. You know, it's, it, it should be mutual. And so the first thing you want to do is really talk to that actor um, beforehand about who's this character. And I mean, before you get to the set. Um, so I write a bio for every character. Hmm. Even if, if the person has three lines, I write a bio for them. The, the bio may be longer than their, their <laughs> screen appearance. Um, and, you know, four pages is the most I've ever gone with anything. And it might be like a, sh a short story or something like that. And that's the stuff that's not necessarily in the script. You know, how long have you been married? You know, you know, where's your life going right now? All those kind of things that would be helpful that an actor would have to make up themselves. I want to make those things up and steer them in the direction. Then you talk to the actor, you know, usually on the phone in my case, because I can't afford to bring people in for rehearsals before I start to shoot. Mm -hmm. um, just so you know, you're on the same page. And then on the day, really what you want to do is just set the scene for the scene that they're going to be in and then watch what the actor is going to do. Mm -hmm. That's where you start. Now, that may not be where you finish, but what you want to do when, you, you know, you're hiring actors because they're good and right. you think they're right for the part. Every once in a while, I've had an actor who really interpreted without changing a line something very differently than what I've imagined. And I've liked it better than what I imagined. Mm -hmm. That's why you want at least that first take to see where they're going to go with, it, you know, and then you start to say, and, and you know, you know, you do these things incrementally is, OK, um, let's bring it more in this direction, because, you know, all, all you're really, you know, giving actors is direction. You're not teaching them how to act. You're directing them. So let's move in this direction. Let's right. move in the direction where you are really, really pissed off and you're working really hard not to show. OK, and then you go to the other actor who's in the scene and say, <laughs> You know what you'd really love to do? You'd like to make this person break their call. You know, you, you, you know, 
So, so you know, just give them a little needle on this now, and then you can have a different dynamic, you right. know. And so, you know, it's I always say it's like, um, especially in two people scenes, it's like being the corner man for both fighters. <laughs> and the other one and say, you know, hit him with the jab. And say, well, if he throws that jab, hit him with the other. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then you get it, you know, so you can change that dynamic each time and get something interesting. Um, you have to handicap actors very quickly. Some actors are wonderful on their first take. Right. Their instincts are great. Their energy is all there. And then they start to complicate or lose energy. <clears throat> Those are actors you want to have technical things all really, really ready to go. And probably the camera is pointing at them first. So they're not stale from having the camera behind them, you know, for right. six or seven tapes, you know. And then you have other actors who actually, you know, maybe they surround their lines, you know, they get closer every time. Well, maybe that's the person who you're over their shoulder for four takes before you turn the camera on them. And they've, they've had time to walk around in the skin of the character a little bit. You handicap those things. The same thing with um, information. Some actors want a lot of information. Mm -hmm. I've had actors um, just say, give me a line reading. I don't care. I'll make it my own. And then other actors, it's if you complete a sentence, they're stop that. You know, and so what you really want to do is is think of like three words that's going to get them in the direction that you want to get them, and they'll they'll take it from there because anything else kind of gets in the way of their process. So you figure those things. You know, you can ask an actor before you start, "How do you like to work?" and they will tell you. That's not always actually how they like to work. <laughs> that's how they think you want them to work. <laughs> yeah, it's but, how, how they like to think about themselves as working. But but when you find out what's really going to be helpful for them. Um, you know, an actor's having a hard time with lines. A lot of what you have to do is depressurize that, you know, mm -hmm. um, if it's an older actor, you say, you know, do you like to work with cue cards? No big deal. Well, just write them up. You know, usually they'll say no. And sometimes they'll say yes. You know, you wish they had said yes earlier if, if they're at that point in their career. Um, but what you have to do is defuse that because when, when people get tense, they, they get even worse at their lines. Right. Um, and so you, you, you know, you just say, we'll, we'll do this one line at a time if we have to just, right. you know, you know, keep your focus and stay in character and don't, don't always say cut just, you know, now, especially that we're not shooting on film mm -hmm. and we don't roll out after 10 minutes. Um, you can just keep rolling and keep the thing very, very kind of loose and, and, you know, easy. And so much of my direction then is not, you blew a line. Mm -hmm. Obviously the actor knows they blew the line. It's yeah. Yeah. Um, you'll get the line really, you know, this time concentrate on this feeling or this undertone or this physical movement or whatever. And, and so that the criticism and the direction is not underlining the fact that they're blowing their lines it's about the acting it's about the character to, right. to keep them in character we'll be right back after a word from our sponsor and now back to the show it's you know it's it's a lot of work um, <laughs> yes, and it's work it but you you know you you really want to you're there to help the actors and if you've got 
people you've worked with before and, and, and they're good at it, sometimes they can really help you with that other actor. Um, mm. I've, ha I've taken actors aside and said, okay, I, I need a little bit more out of this guy. Exaggerate your performance. I promise you, we are behind you. You know, you, you can overact to beat the band on this one and the camera's not going to see it. Or, or, and I'm not you know, going to cut out any bad stuff anyway. So you can just kind of, you know, chew the scenery in this one and see what you can get out of this person. Um, I worked with a young kid in, um, in Mexico once, and I, I was working with Federico Lupi, this wonderful old Argentinian actor. And I said, well, I'm going to do this thing on Danny um, because he's getting... You know, like like a lot of kids, he thinks, okay, my job is to learn my lines in order, and so I'm waiting for my cue for the next line, and and I want him to learn the line. So he's a character, and when he's asked a question, he answers that question. And so I I just said to Danny, you know, you know, Federico's kind of old, and um, he probably won't blow his lines, but he may say them out of order. So you're gonna really have to be on your toes and really know. You know, watch your listen to what he's saying, mm -hmm. you know, because he may throw you a curve and you're going to have to but answer what he, you know, don't do your things in order. And then every once in a while, I had, I had that Federico mess one up, you know, and the kid was so on his toes that he was really acting instead of saying he wasn't in his, his head. Turn, turn his turn, my turn, his right. turn, my turn. Is it, don't you find that sometimes with actors you have to just kind of get them out of their own head sometimes especially I mean experienced actors are different but when you have young actors like that they're getting in their head so much that you just have to take them out and that's a brilliant technique you just laid out that's a brilliant technique to get him to be out of his own head yeah I, I don't like to call them non-actors I, I like to call them new actors right and so very often with them um, it's what do I do with my body you know, because all of a sudden they're thinking about it, you know, and thinking, I'll give them something to do and I'll actually be specific about it. So I'll say, OK, you're going to be, you know, he's going to come and question you about it. You're going to be hanging up laundry. Um, but the really important thing is put all the blue stuff up first and then put the red stuff up and then put the yellow stuff up and then I'll have the props people mix them all up. So while, while they're like doing the laundry, they can't just be, you know, mind dead, grabbing something and putting it up. They've got to look for the blue. They've got to really do something. Um, they probably will not blow their lines, but they're going to have that little lack of, you know, like a person whose attention is divided. Like, I'm doing my laundry here. This guy just showed up and he's asking me questions. I got a, I got a job here, buddy. You know, <laughs> and, it, and it takes them out of them worrying about what do I do with my hands, and you know, you know how how much get, how much time do I I take before I answer him and anything like that, and what how much eye contact and everything like that. They got a job to do. Um, and that really, I, I, I find helps, uh, occasionally I'll just, I'll just say, look, you know, we're shooting you from here. Um, I want you to be, un I, I want you to be even more uncomfortable. Um, lift up your like le left leg and balance on your right. Okay. Let's shoot, <laughs> you know, wow. and all of a sudden the person is trying, but you know, make sure you don't look shaky. 
you know, so the person is really concentrating on something and it gives them a sub, you know, a subtext mm-hmm. of, geez, they're, they're worried about something here. Well, they're worried about falling over. Um, but to the camera, it's just like, what's going on with this person? You know, they're, they're answering the questions, but something right. else is on their mind. That's brilliant. That's, that, those are those are all, all those all those techniques are gold. I hope everyone was taking notes on that one, because uh, those are things that you only learn from doing, only learn from going again and again and again and again and being on set so many times. And and having been an actor, you know, and, that too, and knowing what helps you as an actor, um, you know, especially day players, because that mostly the acting I've done in movies and other people's movies has been as a day player. The, you know, the important thing to know when you're a day player is you walk on the set and the crew looks at you as a liability of, is this guy going to kill us today? <laughs> Are we going to be here all day? You know, we're going to get behind, you know, and that once you're done, you are furniture. When you, you know, when you're, you're wrapped, get out of the way. Because they've got stuff to do, you know, and so you're there for a very, very specific thing. And, you know, as a day player, one of the main things you have to do is just remember this movie's about me. Mm -hmm. That's my character's idea. I'm going to go on, you know, the camera may stay there with that idiot, but I'm, I'm, I'm the star of this movie and I have to play it that way. But in the real world, I'm furniture. (laughs) (laughs) No, you're right. That the star's going to get to get into character and all that kind of shit. I've got to be really be ready with this thing. And, you know, just open yourself up to the script supervisor who can help you and the director who can help you and just say anything else you need, you know, and and be as generous to the other actor who's in the scene with you as as you can be. Um, So that day player thing is I really value people who can come in and just nail a scene and out uh, and, and goodbye. Did you ever, in one of those times that you acted in someone else's project, did did the director pull you aside and go, John, how do you, uh, what do you think about this scene? (laughs) (laughs) How do you think I should shoot Uh, this? (laughs) No, not during it. Um, I was in uh, uh, a movie with uh, that uh, Bertrand Tavernier directed in Louisiana and, uh, John Goodman and uh, Tommy Lee Jones were in it. Mm-hmm. And nobody pulled me aside while I was acting, but they started fighting over the cut. The director and the producer and the actor oh. kind of went in different directions. Oh, God. And so all of a sudden they're asking me to look at the thing. And I said, guys, I'm a day, I'm a day player. <laughs> you know, I can't tell you what the cuts. And finally I just, I said, okay, I'll watch both of the cuts and I'll tell you exactly what I, all of you, exactly what I thought of them. And I thought, you know, these are both valid ways to cut this movie. And, uh, you know, Bertrand's is more poetic and, and the one that Tommy Lee and the, the producer made, you know, it, it makes more sense, probably literal sense for an American audience. And they did what is rare, which is the smart thing, which is they finally decided in Europe it was Bertrand's cup and in the United States it was the producer and, yeah. you know, and so they could all, you know, say nice things about the movie when they did their, their you know, <laughs> press tour. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, no, you know, you really you really when you're acting in somebody else's movie, you're really trying to help them make their day and make the scene come alive. Right. You know, um, and, you know, 
a couple times I've been on, uh, like I, I wrote a TV show years and years and years ago um, and called Shannon's Deal. And I came to do a part on, in an episode and it was like, you know, the fifth episode or something like that. And every single actor who had a recurring part came to me because they knew that I was the head writer on this thing. Is it, you know, in episode seven, they got me in a chicken suit. You know, my character wouldn't wear a chicken suit. You know? <laughs> <laughs> like, I, you know, I'm the writer. Um, I'm not the producer. Um, <laughs> but, you know, you have to figure that, that they figured I'm talking to God here, the one who <laughs> writes the parts. And to a certain extent, it's good for actors to butter up the writer in a TV series. Absolutely. Uh, you know, um, good writers, when they, when, they, when they see an actor start to take off or do something interesting, you know, especially for a series that you're trying to stretch into another season, it's like, oh, I could hang something on that. You know, we, we could go somewhere with that guy. Now, as a director, I, I mean, I, I think every director who's, <laughs> ever, who's ever directed a movie, there's always that day in production where everything is falling down around them. The world is coming... Yeah. The the world is coming to an end. Either you are at that moment going, I'm a fraud. This is horrible. I'm not going to make my day. The sun is going down. Um, what was that moment for you in any of your films? And how did you overcome it? Yeah, I mean, we, 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 you know, there was a scene in my second movie, Liana, where mm -hmm. uh, I just said, we're never going to leave this room. You know, this is like the exterminating angel. This is like that Boonwell movie. Yeah. And because, you know, just a light would break and somebody's stomach would groin right in the middle of a good scene. And oh, Jesus. You know, uh, it just it just wasn't happening. And and I did that. And the same thing happened when we were making um, uh, Lone Star. There was a walk and talk between Chris Cooper and Liz Pena alongside the, the Rio Bravo. And uh, it just wasn't good. And both times I said, you know, um, I think I have to rethink this scene. We're going to shoot this again and let's move on. And so you just get out of there and then you have time to, 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 to rethink it. And um, sometimes it's I'm not going to change anything, but I'm going to appear to change things. So you, know, you move you move the camera back and you put a longer lens on and you got the same image, but it seems like you've done something different. You know, right. you know, oh, I, I, I fucked up the angle. You know, let's let's change this thing. And so it's not on the actors if they're part of the problem. Um, and it doesn't it doesn't seem stale. So I reblock the walk and talk slightly. I move some lines around. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. I, I made like one good cut of a line in a transposition or something. And I remember I, I, I got there. Um, um, this is, uh, you know, down on the border uh, near Eagle Pass. And I got there. Uh, I, I skipped lunch that day and I went and I, I laid down on a hot rock and thought about how am I going to restage this thing so the actors feel like they're doing something totally new from what we did yesterday. Mm -hmm. uh, then I started hearing the crew arrive and everything. I looked up in the sky and there were five buzzards circling over me. <laughs> it looked like there was a dead 
in Iraq, you know, I thought, okay, <laughs> you got to wait. Um, and then, and then I explained it to them as, you know, you know, I, I think I figured this out and I've changed some lines here and, and a slight change in the blocking. And it was new enough that the actors came at it with a totally mm -hmm. different energy and we did two takes and we were gone. So, so a lot of it is just kind of just change the, change the dynamic a little bit. Sometimes it just means everybody's tired and you should go home. Mm. Important to know that. You're, you're, you're just going to do two hours of bad work. Why not go home and get two hours of decent sleep? And then you'll catch up at some point. Um, sometimes it's that, you know, something has gone stale. Uh, a hard thing for, for movie actors that you don't have in theater, because I've acted in theater too, um, is that when you, you've got to make everything seem new and it's not in order. Mm -hmm. Um, and often when you're in trouble in a scene is because you're playing the end of the scene because you know what happens at the beginning of the scene. Right. And that's so hard to forget that on take 12. Um, <laughs> especially if it's kind of a long scene. Well, whereas if you, if you change the dynamic or come back another day, you have more energy for it, you know? And if it's different, it's different. It's not the same scene. It doesn't have to be that much different. It's not the same scene. And all of a sudden, you find another way to do it, and it comes alive a little bit. Did you ever use that old editor's trick where you, if you have a producer that you have to um, uh, appease or a studio that you have to appease, that you throw in a red herring in the cut to have them have something that's so obviously not supposed to be there where they can go, oh, I can, I have to, oh, I, yeah, you need to change that in scene six. And you're like, oh, thank you for seeing that. But you knew that that was going to go out anyway. Yeah. You know, I really only have had that battle once when I was making Baby It's You with Paramount and okay. they just decided they wanted a high school comedy halfway through the shooting of the movie. <laughs> Jesus. And it wasn't written to be a high school comedy. It was never going to be Porky's or Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Um, but I, I really just said, I'm just going to make the movie. I'm going to cut the movie that I think is the best movie. And then we're going to fight over it. Um, <laughs> and I got kicked out of the editing room. Um, wow. They did their cut. Um, they test marketed it. Their test marketed one point worse than my. <laughs> my cut um so they very grudgingly gave me back the movie to cut and um you know there were a couple things they'd done you know just kind of physical cuts that i liked and i kept those and i threw everything else and, and went back to what i had before um but i i didn't want to i didn't want to test them with that kind of stuff there wasn't a censorship problem which i think you can get right. out with with sex and violence you can get into sure. censorship problem and then sometimes it does make sense to just like, let's just hit them with everything. <laughs> and so in, in such shock and awe that if we if we cut right. six things out and leave the four that we really want, you know, they'll be happy and think that they've won the battle. Um, and, you know, people would do that with uh, the MPAA as mm -hmm. well, as they leave a couple things in that they could concede, okay, you forced me to give up my favorite shot, you know, <laughs> when it's not my favorite shot at all. I haven't really had to do that kind of gamesmanship. Um, what I do, I do, um, do is when I do screenings, I don't do the, the fill out a form. Did you like this? Did you not like this thing? That's so subjective. 
Um, my questions are all, did you understand this? Because that's when you lose an audience is when right. they don't understand, when things are confusing, right. you know, and, and that's usually the feedback I get from an audience that that means the most and makes me, you know, change cuts. Um, and then also just kind of sitting with my back to the screen and watching an audience watch it and feel them reacting to the picture, mm -hmm. you know, and, and does this seem like they're treading water a little bit? Should should we get to something quicker? Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's good to have, you know, people who did not work on the movie um, see it. But people who you think are going to like it or could like it. Um, the, the problem with those invited screenings that they did is, um, you know, they did a test of Baby It's You. And there was a rumor going on, you know, in Paramus or wherever it was, that it was a Burt Reynolds picture. Well, some of our bad numbers were probably because people were pissed because Burt Reynolds never showed up. The son of a bitch. When's Burt Reynolds going to show up in this movie? Yeah. <laughs> now, in your film Lone Star, I, I, honestly, when I saw Lone Star, I was I probably was in film school and or right before it. And I, for the first time, really saw the transitions you did to, to transfer time. I remember mm -hmm. like it was all in the same shot. So you'd start off in the bar and you would pan over and then it was in the past and it was done so masterfully. Where did you get the inspiration for those shots? Cause I've, I mean, I've seen Coppola do it in, uh, not with time as much, but I thought on Dracula and in Tucker and things like that. But yours was the first time I really kind of noticed that mastery in that, in that scene transition. Did you get inspired from somebody or did you come up with that? No, no, I had seen, you know, tricky master shots before and stuff like that. Um, I think uh, there might have been a couple Italian movies who might do that once in a film or whatever. Sure. Uh, but uh, I actually um, like those kind of transitions. I remember uh, I, I wrote the screenplay for Clan of the Cave Bear. Yeah, Daryl Hannah. Uh, my, you know, and originally it was going to be a TV movie, and in the TV movie, uh, you had like seven commercial breaks, and so when there was going to be, you know, a time montage, you could get rid of the time montage and just, you cut to a commercial break. And, you know, um, so, you know, we see some little blonde girl um, get saved from a saber-toothed tiger that, you know, scratches her thigh, you know, and leaves claw max on her, on her thigh. You cut from that to the commercials. And then, you know, seven minutes later, you cut to Daryl Hannah's thigh and it's got this scar on it and you pan Done. up to her face and it's Daryl Hannah and that many years have passed, you know? So I, I often thought about transitions and how different they are in a feature. They're different than in a TV movie and, you know, uh, and what a transition does as far as time is concerned. And so I was interested in how do I do a transition where I underline the fact that we're living with the past Mm -hmm. It's not, this is now, that was then. Mm -hmm. It's, this is now and then is right on our shoulders. Then is, is you know, loading the dice with everything we do now. Um, and that's the kind of town that we're in. And so I thought up these shots where we would go from, you know, uh, uh, you know, present day um, back 27 years or whatever it was, uh, 17 years. I forget how many years it was. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. 
And now back to the show. And uh, without a cut. And then you sit with your, your production designer and your lighting guy and um, your grip department, and you figure this shit out, and it's really fun for them to do. Oh, yeah. You know, it's like, I'm going to do this. You know, oh, well, you know, when we come back, the place has to be redesigned. So we have to have stuff that we can just stick on the walls and stick on the, the columns, yeah. you know, really quickly. And, you know, Cliff James is a big guy, and he's in his 70s. He's not going to be able to get out of that chair quickly enough. So we're going to have to have two grips lift him in the chair up and run ahead of the camera and get him up. Oh, those are the best. Those are the best. I love those shots. And, you know, we got other ones where we're going to start on two cops walking down the street being harried by these two civilian ladies. Um, And then as they go behind the car that they're going to get into, um, our camera operator is going to um, step onto a platform on the side of the cop car um, that has to be slid in after the driver gets in. So that I need to give him two lines there for that to happen. When the guy slides in, he shuts the door. We hold on the guy on the other side still standing up. But by the time we come down and look through the window, there's this platform our DP has, you know, operator has stepped up on it and they can drive away with him. And now we've got a, a moving two shot without a cut and then they can get out and we can follow them into a building, you know. Well, those for a grip department, that's so much fun. There's guys <laughs> sliding under cars with Makita drills and, you know, and pulling the trigger in between lines and stuff like that and, you know, putting magnets on with with light units on the front of the car because you saw the car first right. naked and it's got to have all this rigging on it you know um and you you know that's maybe half a morning of rehearsal just for all that mechanic stuff and then you start working the actors in and we we'd make three takes and then you know it's lunchtime and you're done um they're they're, they're so much fun um, and satisfying for a crew and for the actors and stuff. And there's a there's a nice kind of energy and spirit for the actors that comes with them. Um, mm-hmm. There's the challenge. You know, you're doing a nine-minute scene, and you come in at 8.30, and you have three lines. You don't want to <laughs> blow those lines. <laughs> actors pissed at you. Um, oh, my God, we yeah. had that happen. guy who had the, the, the last line. Blew his line because he'd been waiting for so long, oh. you know. Uh, you know, and we said, "Well, just do another one, and you'll be better this time." <laughs> and then slowly you go, "You, you better be better this time." <laughs> now, um, I have to ask you. You know, you also got to direct a, a young up-and-coming musician back in the '80s uh, by the name of Bruce Springsteen. Um, how did you get hooked up with Bruce and and like? direct some of the most iconic music videos of the of that of that era kind of evolved um when we did baby it's you uh which was you know set in 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 trenton new jersey and you know during the 60s and uh even though his his the music that we used wasn't from that era um mm-hmm. there were four songs of his that i really felt like iconically belonged in that movie just as mm-hmm. and they're not coming from jukeboxes or anything so they're not we're not pretending they were written then 
they're kind of the, the more authorial music in the movie. And we just contacted um, his management and said, look, we, we would love to use these songs. We're going to cut the movie together, put the songs in. You get to see it. If you hate it, we have backups. Um, if you like it, we'll make a deal, you know. And then, as it turned out, they, they, they liked the movie. They liked the way the music was, was, was used and were very generous with their half of the music rights. Right. Um, I right. think the record label, the performances, they owned the publishing, and they were very generous with the publishing, which was you know great, because you know, we could buy some other songs. Um, so we had that contact. Uh, then Maggie Frenzy, who I'm married to and, and has produced a bunch of my uh, movies, her sister did a PBS movie, uh, a dance movie. She's a choreographer that use Springsteen music. And the thing with PBS is you can use anybody's music and it's free because it's public, edu- you know, television. So if you saw the, the Vietnam series mm-hmm. that um, Burns did, every hit of the, of the 60s You're absolutely 70s, right. I never thought about that. Thrown away, you know, 28 seconds of Rolling Stones in the background because you don't have to pay for them. Oh my God, uh, I never even thought about that. Easy. You know, you you could finance a country for you know what what Daisy has to pay for some of his soundtracks, but for PZ, PBS, it's just like you want it, you got it. Um, and so uh, Marta was able to um, get that movie to Bruce, and through that we we kind of met Bruce and and the the people who you know kind of ran his business for him. And uh, I think it was right after the Dancing in the Dark video. Um, he wanted to do Born in the USA kind of gritty and they called us up and said, hey, I do gritty. Um, <laughs> uh, and he had, you know, so I did the three videos for Bruce and they were, you know, basically his ideas and I certainly had, they weren't big budgets, but it was certainly more money than I'd ever had to make two and a half minutes of film. Sure. Plus I got to cut Springsteen music, you know, in the, at the end of the day. So they were really fun to do. Um, a little difficult in the case of Glory Days in that he had just gotten married and was more famous than anybody on the planet for, right. you know, about three months. And so I remember we were driving out to where we're going to do the intro on a, a baseball field. And there's like, you know, a rock and roll station helicopter following us, reporting <laughs> where our, you know, Going just in case we need more people hanging out and, and screwing up our shop. Oh, Jesus. Um, but they were fun. And, uh, and, you know, the E Street Band was fun. For the first one, we got to film four concerts. Um, so we got to see four Bruce Springsteen live concerts. Um, <laughs> or clothes every night, you know, uh-huh. so that there was some continuity in it. Um, but, um, that was kind of when, you know, rock videos, I think there was an important role that they did for, for you know, upcoming directors. Mm-hmm. So many upcoming directors cut their teeth on those mm-hmm. with a real budget, mm-hmm. with cranes and fog and all the shit that you usually oh. can't afford. Techno cranes um, and, and stuff like that, yeah. Yeah, you know, creative things with them. Um, so that was a that was a nice era, I think, for upcoming filmmakers especially the 90s when like the finchers and michael bay and yeah. fuqua and spike jones and the i mean you look at some of those old fincher like aerosmith 
uh, like like Janie's got a gun. It's a masterwork. I mean, he had all the money in the world. It was insane. Yeah, and and many of them are kind of like very small movies with all the kind of dialogue cut out, you know. Um, And and they had to look good, you know, and they were it was very competitive those kind of things. And the record companies still kind of existed and still had money to spend oh, on those things. Oh God, so much um, money in the nineties. Then, then it disappeared fairly quickly. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember working in Miami when I was coming up as an editor and working like two, $300,000 budget music videos on like B and C level acts, not yeah. like a, a levels would be getting half million, million, million and a half. It was, in, it was insane. It was a different time. <laughs> Which are feature films in my world. Absolutely. Absolutely. No million dollars, I'll make a feature. Absolutely. No question. Now, is there any advice you wish you would have heard at the beginning of your career? Um, yeah, I, I, I think um, I could have used about a week of film school um, just for some technical things that uh, would have been helpful. Uh, on my first movie, I wish I had trusted my instincts a little bit more. Um, my crew having, having, you know, late seventies shooting commercials, everything was kind of rock steady and very clean. And, um, the shaking cam thing on MTV hadn't started yet. Um, and I wanted a, a more, found documentary look to it and mm-hmm. and handheld and i would have been happy to have almost the whole movie handheld mm-hmm. and they just said oh no it's going to look terrible people are going to get sick it's going to be shaky <laughs> right then just to have some movement in the movie there there are two sequences in sakaka seven one mm-hmm. where these guys are playing basketball and they work a thing out and another where the whole bunch of them are playing volleyball and then uh, a third one where they're playing charades and I got the operator um, to handhold, and it turned out he was a great handheld operator. He had worked for, uh, I forget the guy's name, um, who made all the skiing films, Warren Miller. Oh, wow. And he, my operator used to ski down a hill and duck his head between his legs and shoot upside down and backwards as people skied down a hill behind him. Wow. That kind of, and he used to shoot the Dartmouth football games handheld, you know. So he was a great handheld operator. He just he just didn't think it belonged in a feature movie because that's the commercial feature world that he was thinking of. You know? Sure. Um, so I think some is look, you know, trust your instincts and then live with them. So if your instincts are wrong, then you go in the editing room and you, you know, you you try to fix things. But um, and then I think it, it, it would also just be um, don't say cut so quickly. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Oh, God, yeah, that's one of the best pieces of advice I heard. Some I forgot who it was. It's like when you're on um, first one because we were running we were running out of 16 millimeter. We were. Up in New Hampshire, um, we didn't want to over, you know, buy stock because you mm-hmm. couldn't really give it back or want anything like that. So it came on the on the Trailways bus twice a week, and, <laughs> you know, and we just kind of parceled it out. And so I was always really, you know, cut right on the thing because I don't 
I, you know, if I've got two minutes left on that 10 minute reel, you know, I got a, I got a, you know, minute and 52 second scene that I can get in there or take that I can get in there. And I didn't want to blow that in half short ends. Um, but so often I cut a little too close or there was a nice reaction from an actor, you know, and it's the great thing about digital now, which is you let it go. I, I, I saw, I think it was Tom Hanks and, um, uh, Matt, what's his name? Um, on a show who had done a, um, uh, Clint Eastwood movie. And they saw, so, so, you know, cause Clint was, you know, notoriously low key on a set and, you know, is instead of action, it's kind of, okay, let's, let's get into this guys. And, um, <laughs> uh, they were saying that, uh, they had to get used to, um, Eastwood saying when he was done with something, okay, that's enough of that. Uh, <laughs> um, which is better than cut too quickly, you know, but it, there is a nice thing, which is that sometimes what you get at the very end, it may not even be for that scene. But yes. There's a reaction. It, it could be an, in a face because they hated their take, but that face can work. Um, yeah. Yeah. And um, I, I heard that same advice somewhere. Someone said, like, when you're about to deal cut, wait five seconds. Yeah. Just hold it for five more seconds, even when you want to cut, because you just never know. And I've been in the editing room so many times, I've grabbed a, a look, a movement, something from exactly what you just said, an actor hating their take or something going like, ugh. And it's perfect for another scene. I, learned, I also learned early um, doing conversations, especially um, to, to just say, okay, um, Keep going, stay in character. Okay, look left at the guy. Now look right at something. Done. And and every once in a while, you need that that right look, you know, or that left look. And uh, you don't have to flip something and and have you know the the <laughs> the logo. They have to digitally uh, remove. Yeah. <laughs> now I'm going to ask you a few questions. To ask all my guests. Um, what advice would you give a filmmaker trying to break into the business today? I I would say you know you're a filmmaker, make a film. Um, do and and importantly, do something that you think you can do well. So let's say you wrote a a nice 90 minute feature, and it can it can it can star you know, new actors or people, you know, kind of a mixed bag of people who are pretty good actors or very new at it or whatever. See if you can go out and make that movie for no money, you know, um, with the best, the best equipment you can get mm -hmm. and then call it a rehearsal and look at it. And if there is 20 minutes that you think is great after you cut it together, you, you have that to, 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 to start showing around. Um, you may get to make that very movie again with ideal people, some of the same, some of different, whatever, and you've already had a great practice run. Um, but really learn, learn what works, what you did well, and, and that's what you show. Um, but I think the best way now to get discovered is not, you know, necessarily knowing somebody or, you know, showing, you know, oh, my film school teacher thought I was wonderful, you know, which it's, <laughs> no, um, is, is to have something to show, you know, and, and then, and then you're going to have to give it away. 
you know, you have to put it online, you know, and, and try to, you know, get it seen wherever you can. Um, volunteer, you know, uh, if you've got a film school near you, if you're an actor, you volunteer to be in all those movies. Um, you know, I got Chris Cooper for Make One, who had never been in the movie before. He'd done quite a bit of theater mm-hmm. uh, because he was in um, my production office coordinator's student film at NYU. Nancy Savoka had used Chris Cooper and when he was just an acting student in New York. And she said, you got to see this guy. Um, you know, he volunteered, you know, and he met Nancy and he did a good job in her film. And she really liked working with him and she talked him up. Um, so as an actor, you know, just find out who's making movies and say, you know, here I am. I'm not in the guild yet. I'm giving it away, you know. And, um, yeah. And you've and, and it worked out with you and Chris. Chris, did he's done OK for himself over the years. Yeah. 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 You know, and it's, it's you know, if I hadn't discovered him, somebody else would have. But right. in those days, I somehow got away with making a you know, $3.2 million movie with an actor who, as a lead, who'd never been in a movie before. That's insanity. Yeah, that's not, yeah. yeah, that's insanity. That would never happen in a million years now. It just doesn't. Yeah. But I mean, I, I think, you know, um, think about, you know, you, you've written a bunch of scripts. What's the one that you could do for almost no money um, with friends? And it would be watchable. Wouldn't be ideal to be watchable. Or is there a scene from it that, that, that shows, you know, some part of your directing that you think is really good or somebody you're writing that thing, you know, you just do that scene. Um, but how- it, it's, it's doable. No, it used to be that would cost you money. Mm-hmm. You know, even on an amateur level, it would cost you money. You'd have to buy film stock and rent, right. you know, you know, 16, at least equipment. Um, now it does not have to cost you any money. And, and here's the thing though about that, which is you and your collaborators um, the hardest thing for you to survive and stay friends will be success. <laughs> That's great advice. Uh, you know, I've seen this happen a bunch of times. You know, when, when a movie comes out of nowhere and gets to be a success, really only the director, maybe an actor, and maybe the producer, but probably not, will get any attention. And they really are going to have to grab onto whatever that is and get a, a deal for another movie or whatever. And, and other people may be jettisoned, you know, which is a why I say um, on your first movie, you can pay people nothing on your second movie. You either have to pay people something or get new friends um, who are also just starting out. You know, right. so it's a big deal. for them. Um, but also um, just understand that, you know, Credit doesn't go to the team. No. Very few collectives have stayed together for more than one picture. Um, so, so really think of, you know, and be honest with each other of what you're getting out of this is the experience. You know, I know people who, who had a big success at, at Sundance. And mm-hmm. uh, one of the great things they were able to do is they said, we are renting a condo. Anybody who worked on the picture, if you can get your ass here, come and you're invited to the party and you're invited to the movie and, and that's it. We can't afford to bring you there. And that, that may be it. That may be a reward, you know, is the fun of that party and having worked on something that's good. 
And how about for screenwriters? I mean, because you've just written so much. Well, how about screenwriters trying to come in and break in today? Yeah, if you're only a screenwriter um, uh, and you went to film school, um, try to buddy up to some of the people we think were really interesting directors. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Okay. Uh, you know, uh, an awful lot of people uh, coming through film school think they have to be writer-directors. I'm a writer-director. There are a few writer-directors. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Coen brothers are writer-directors. There's a lot of really good directors who have a good story sense, but they're not writers. Right. And they need writers. And if you're a screenwriter, that's who you want to hook up with, somebody who think you really has a nice visual style um, who has interesting ideas, who has a good story sense. Uh, and then you say, well, you want some material to try your hand on. And once again, it might only be a scene, um, but hook up with those people. Um, it's, it's a really hard thing as a, as a screenwriter um, to break in. As I said, you know, I broke in by having written two novels in a short story collection. Right. And that got an introduction to a, a film agent. You know? Right. Um, Somebody read one of my short stories and then, you know, um, and when I wrote a screenplay, um, I had only read one screenplay. Somebody gave me a copy of um, William Goldman's screenplay for The Stepford Wives. Mm-hmm. So I, I knew because there, bo- there weren't film writing books then. So right. I at least knew the f- and I read it and I realized, God, I could do that. <laughs> one of the more. You know, it's very simple screenplay. It's, it, you know, it's kind of a no-brainer. You know, I said, well, I could do that. You know, so it actually was good for my confidence. If the, and this guy gets a half a million dollars for running things through his typewriter. You know, <laughs> I could do that. Um, you know, this is a great premise. Um, but, uh, but, you know, just, just kind of knowing that. And then really having this thing is, okay, I'm writing for a reader. And so this thing has to read exciting and it has to have the rhythm, the rhythm of a movie. Mm. And so you really have to think about your white space and your popping yes. things up and <laughs> cross cutting and, and not too much description. You know, my, my favorite um, example of great description is, is a Raymond Chandler story where um, he has this line, uh, um, the detective goes to somebody's sleazy office and he says, uh, he gave me a drink of warm gin and a dirty glass. That's the only description of the office. <laughs> you know, that's all you need. If you can find that equivalent, you've got one little slug line, you know, don't be saying, oh, and then we see this and we see that, and, you know, that's for the, you know, production, production design. design. You can get it down to those one or two lines, you know, and and maybe it's funny or whatever, and keep the rhythm of the thing going so that it reads like a house on fire, if that's the rhythm of the screenplay. Um, but, you you know, this is the movie right now. And then later on, the director's going to say, well, I need to know more about this, 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 and this, and this. That's after you've got the green light. You can put all that stuff in. But the, but the first thing you're writing is a selling document 
And that's just got to just be exciting to read and have a page turning quality. What is the lesson that took you the longest to learn, whether in the film industry or in life? Um, uh, that you can't predict the future. And uh, <laughs> uh, there's a, a thing called the Monte Carlo fallacy. Mm-hmm. And it, gambling, uh, which is basically, okay, you're playing roulette just because the ball um, went on the, the black um, 10 times in a row doesn't mean that it's more likely to go on the white the next spin. It's still a little less than 50-50 because there's, there's, you know, the one, um, the, the one green space. Um, so when you're not getting any work, that doesn't mean you'll never get any work again. And when you are getting work, that doesn't mean you're always going to get work. Um, that there, that there is so much luck involved in it, no matter what your talent. Um, there's, you know, I know actors who have had terrible time because they did good work in three movies in a row and those movies didn't get released. Right. So it's like they died or, or, oh, does that actor have like a a substance abuse problem? What happened to that actor? Well, they disappeared because the movies didn't get released, not because the actor did bad work, you know, and then that was over a year and a half, two year period, you know, and it's just like they disappeared Well, they're off the list. Uh, That can happen with writers as well. Um, So you, you really have to just keep slugging away at it and not let it get you down uh, you know, you have, in terms of life, you have to be realistic. Um, and if you're, you know, I've been lucky and I've gotten to the point where I've made a living as a writer for a long time now, mm-hmm. pretty much interrupted, interrupted by maybe a year or two of no work, but enough money coming in that I didn't have to take a different kind of job. Uh, if you're younger, if you have kids, mm. uh, you may have to take another kind of job, right? You know? Um, and then you have to really make that decision of what kind of job can I take where I still have the energy and willpower to go home and crank at the, uh, you know, the keyboard for a couple hours. Right. Because I, I really, you know, doing that. When I, when I was first um, sending out short stories, um, I found that when I worked in a sausage factory or a plastic factory, I could come home and I could work for three or four hours. No, no human contact, just noise, you know, and, you know, kind of rope, you know, uh, routine, you know, motions and physical work, but, but nothing mental. When I worked in hospitals and had to deal with people, I was too exhausted to, to work at all. Right. And they paid. The same. So probably the <laughs> non-human contact job was a better one to also have a career as a writer than one with a lot of human contact. Don't be a social worker. <laughs> no, no way. Um, is there a lesson that you learned from your, what is the lesson you learned from your biggest failure in life in, in, in the film industry? Um, I would say, um, that the movie is going to last for a long, long time. And that the compromises that you're willing to make with a movie um, 
are going to haunt you if you, you feel you sold your own movie out. Yep. Uh, and so it costs quite a bit career wise, maybe. And, you know, my hair should still be blonde. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I hung in and, you know, on, on baby, it's you. And I said, look, you know, you finance this movie. It belongs to you. Uh, I'm just not going to put my name on it unless it's a cut that I believe in. And finally, it was one of those deals where they said they kind of threw it back at me and said, "Okay, cut it the way you want to. And then pretty much told people, do not do any work on this movie. We're going to let it escape. We're not going to release it. Um, And so that was kind of a vindictive release of Mm -hmm. the movie. This is so uh, counterproductive. So counterproductive. But you know that happens all the you know it especially happens when new people take over a studio and they sure. they kill the cubs. You know, um, but <laughs> yeah. in this case, it was like they had some other successes and and you know um, they just wanted to get this thing off their hands and not look bad. Um, but the movie's still good, and I still like the movie. So I don't have to kind of say, oh God, I wish I had held out. You know and. You know, and so that was in, in some ways it was a failure because the communication broke down and, you right. know, didn't go as well as it, it should have. Um, on the other hand, we turned out the way that I thought it should. Good. And last question, three of your favorite films of all time. Uh, Yojimbo. Amazing. After of course. Um, you know, just just kind of uh, the music, the oh, everything the rhythm everything you know, camera angles just really fun to watch again and again treasure of sierra madre mm-hmm. um which is just a great hollywood movie um you know uh by certainly independent spirited director you know john <laughs> would you know he got himself down to mexico and we're far from you know yep. probing and made a really really good movie yeah. Um, and drank a lot of tequila, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, it, and, it, and it plays like an independent movie to me, you know, yeah. uh, and, and has a real kind of uh, soul to it. Um, and then Two Women, which is a Vittorio De Sica movie with Sophia mm-hmm. Loren. Yes, uh, yes, yes. Just really, really moving uh, World War II movie. Um, and it's the, um, kind of my introduction to European cinema i didn't see a movie with subtitles until i was in college Uh, i just saw you know foreign movies on tv if they played them at all um and and if they weren't in english language they were dubbed so i saw the dubbed version first um with commercials and it still you know got me to cry Mm -hmm. you know and uh you know just kind of we'll be right back after a word from our sponsor And now back to the show. Depth of humanity of it. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, beautiful performances. And DeSica had a really, really human touch. So, you know, those three movies, you know, to me just got got me interested. How could you, could you actually, because most movies weren't like that. Right. I like mainstream movies and everything like that. But those were ones that really jumped out at me when I saw them. And when it, when's your next movie? When are we going to see another John Sayles movie? Boy, when I get one financed. Um, <laughs> like most screen, screenwriter directors, I have three, maybe four 
um, just just add money. Um, you know, we're working on a couple now. Um, I'm actually I got to work um, with um, Doug Trumbull, mm-hmm. uh, special yeah. effects guy, who also did Silent Running and Brainstorm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We're working together on something that we would co-direct a kind of big science fiction thing. Oh my I've God. got a Western that we shoot in, in Mexico. I've got a, a kind of um, one location barroom movie with John Cusack in Chicago that, you know, should be easy to finance. Um, and um, that's my COVID hotline. I should call them back. <laughs> the way, so they're, they're trying to trace me. Yes, no problem. Uh, but John, thank you again so much for being on the show, man. I, I, I hope I hope someone listening, please finance John's next movie. Uh, <laughs> but I appreciate this has been a master class in directing and writing, and I truly appreciate your time and, and, and your career and all the work you've done and inspiration you've given a lot of filmmakers over the years. So John, thank you so much for being on the show, my friend. Thanks a lot, Alex. I want to thank John so much for coming on the show and dropping his knowledge bombs on the tribe today. Thank you again so much, John. If you want to get links to anything we spoke about in this episode, head over to the show notes at bulletproofscreenwriting.tv forward slash 150. And there, if there is somebody out there who wants to finance a movie, John Sales needs some money. <laughs> like we said in the interview, someone finance his film so we can see another John Sales movie. For God's sakes, it's been way, way too long. And if you haven't already, please Head over to screenwritingpodcast.com, subscribe, and leave a good review for the show. It really helps us out a lot. Thank you again so much for listening, guys. As always, keep on writing no matter what. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast at bulletproofscreenwriting.tv. 